Hello and welcome to Everything Interesting Under the Sun. I'm your host, Ethan Clark. Today, we have Dr. Ted Pavlik joining us. Ted is a professor in the School of Sustainability, as well as the School of Computing and Augmented Intelligence at Arizona State University. His current research focuses on the decision-making strategies of non-human natural systems, such as ant and bee colonies. Enough of the introduction, though. Here's my conversation with Ted Pavlik. Thank you for joining me. I must say that I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Well, let's get into it. So I was doing some research to prepare for this conversation, and I noticed that all of your degrees are in electrical engineering and computing related. But now you are working with social insects, and these, seem, these two things seem to be very disjoint from one another. So how did you make this pivot to enter into this new field? Sure. Also, uh, before I, I got into my bachelor's degree in, uh, so my bachelor's degree is in electrical and computer engineering, and uh, before that I spent about 10 years in software engineering, uh, doing um, some front-end work and some back-end work. Um, that back then, you could be very young in that because there were very few people kind of in that field. But and I ended up deciding that I wanted to go into um, uh, electrical engineering because I, I felt at that time there was a, a major sort of explosion in wireless communications. And I really was excited about this idea of there, there being a way to communicate with people across you know, thin air. It seemed magical to me at that point in my career. And so I went in and I decided I was going to become an electrical engineer. And in, uh, in doing so, you know, I, I did all the EMAG stuff but it, through my undergrad, but I started to get more familiar with analog electronics, and I learned about this thing called control theory, which has to do, in the case of electronics, on, you know, we're dealing with microphones here, and so, you know, you might be familiar with sort of the noise you get if you get feedback and, and those sorts of things, and so you have to figure out, well, how can I build electronics that... that uh, you know, eliminate that feedback while not eliminating functionality. And, and that um, is a sort of a tip of the iceberg of something called control theory. And so um, that became really exciting to me. And so um, I pivoted away. It, it's kind of one of these weird things where like once, once you kind of learn um, enough about the kind of phenomena that seemed like magic, it kind of takes all the magic away from it. So, you know, you, you, you learn Maxwell's laws, you, you learn, you know, how to build antennas and things like that, and then suddenly it, it just doesn't, didn't have that quite the allure that, that I wanted before, and, um, but this control theory did. And so I decided to pivot into grad school and just studying this thing called control theory, which also was in electrical engineering. Now, meanwhile, behind the scenes, I have been, uh, you know, I was reading a lot of books on, um, I just was generally interested in how stuff works. And, and that was, in some parts, that was sort of physics and cosmology, but then there was a large part of that was about biology and evolution and physiology. And just, that was just stuff that I was just interested in on the side. And when I happened to come into, who became my graduate advisor's office, a guy named Kevin Passano, I looked on his bookshelves and he saw I, I, kind of like all the books that I was reading on the side. And I thought, well, you know, just 
just brought kind of his sort of recreational books onto his bookshelves, that's fine. But as I was talking to him more, and he was a control theorist, I found that what he was actually doing was, uh, was looking at how biology has solved problems that related to sort of how single agents move through their environment and deal with uncertain rewards, um, uncertain challenges and things like that, and how they make decisions to kind of deal with that. And so he was, um, he introduced me to sort of this idea of bio-inspired algorithm design for, for coming up with things like, you know, in this case it was more like robotic systems, but he was also interested in the automation systems that were throughout the built environment. So, you know, lighting and heating controls and those sorts of things. And so that kind of, you know, to kind of make maybe a little bit of a longer story short, um, that um, when I joined his grad program, we focused very much on this interface of looking at animal behavior and um, algorithm design for autonomous systems. A lot of them were embodied systems, systems that live in the physical world, but, but a, a few of them were more like software agents than actually robots moving through the world. And as we kind of bubbled up more and more in our research, then we shifted our focus from individuals, like how, uh, how a gray jay makes a decision about where to cache her seeds, to groups, uh, to, you know, so if you look at cooperatively breeding fish like cichlids, then they, uh, there are unrelated fish that end up taking care of the fry, the, the, the brood, of, uh, of these other fish, and so why do they do that? And so that that became kind of an inspiration for communications networks and our stuff we did. And then it was kind of getting up into like these built environment examples, where at that point we had large numbers of actuators that all had to work together for a common goal. And we realized that that's where things like ants and bees could actually be really inspirational. And so I left my uh, grad program, well, I, I finished my grad program, my PhD, um, in electrical engineering thinking about these types of large-scale uh, distributed systems of these algorithms and um, and that kind of launched me into some of the work that I do today which is actually working directly with the natural systems as opposed to just the literature based on them. Was there a single idea that really made you change your mind as in oh I don't know if I really want to pursue electrical engineering anymore and now I want to pivot into more biologically inspired fields. Was there a specific idea that made you come to this realization? Well, I guess that for me, it, I don't think I ever really did pivot away. Uh, to me, I feel like the algorithmic design was exactly the same stuff we were doing in control in electrical engineering. Um, you know, we in the lab, I would implement some of my algorithms as circuits, you know, on boards that, you know, so these were things that we actually had to build up from electrical components or implement in software. And we've actually gone the other way too. So um, I studied a lot of things from communication theory when my, in my grad work, things that have to do with coding theory and information theory and things like that. And, and so when you, um, and I started to recognize problems in the laboratory that were exactly the same as the problems that I had studied in comm theory. So, like, when I have a student now who needs to paint ants, and so you say you have 300 ants and you need to give them unique IDs, so you need to paint them with paint codes so that you can always recognize each one of those 300 ants, you have this problem that occasionally an ant will go over and grab a paint mark off of one of her sisters and, um, and just tear it off, like, just clean it off her. And that's kind of annoying because you're like, well, now there could be ambiguity if I don't do this right. 
Now it turns out that there's a, this is a coding problem in electrical engineering. And this is, has to do with these things called erasure codes. Because there can be these times when if I want to send you four bits over a communication channel, sometimes one of those bits gets lost. And so um, the question from the double E side of things, or from the coding side of things, was can I come up with four bit codes where it doesn't matter which bit you lose, I'll still be able to reproduce the, that, those four bits. Nowadays, people might be more familiar with this. If they think about hard drives, there are these things called RAIDs that some people are familiar with for large amounts of storage, where you can put in four disks into a drive, and you only use three disks worth of space. And that fourth disk is there as it, it's what we call a parity bit. And what that means is if any one of those drives dies, you don't lose any data. You just have to pull the drive out, put a new drive in, takes a couple hours to repopulate, and then you have all your data back. But it doesn't matter which drive dies, you all your data's there. And so we could take those ideas and then repurpose them for painting ants. And so that particular student, you know, I, I turned him on to this idea, and he wrote a paper, I think it was called uh, Dude, Where's My Mark, or something like that. And, uh, and it was using these ideas from erasure codes and parity bits and all that, all applied to paint. And so now when we paint ants, we paint them in a very special way that is totally like exactly what an electrical engineer would do if they were communicating with paint as opposed to you know, electrical beeps and bops on a, you know, an acoustic channel or another type of channel. It's interesting. So you're mentioning the parallels between the technical field of electrical engineering with the natural field of biology. I would have assumed just by nature that biology has been around for thousands of more years than these technical fields of electrical engineering, I would have assumed that the rate of transfer or the direction of transfer would come only from biology to engineering. I would have, would have never thought that you're using these engineering techniques and applying it to your biological studies. That's really fascinating. But to continue on with that, what ideas do you think in biology are the most fascinating from your studies within social insect colonies? Well, I guess it's, 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 it's hard to pick one, like pick a favorite. I guess to me what's most exciting about biology is the diversity. Uh, so as an engineer, I think a lot of people when they think about bio-inspired design and biomimicry and these sorts of things, they think about kind of this idea that you've had whatever, four billion years of evolution, and that four billion years of evolution um, somehow has been progressing toward you know, better and better designs or something like that. And that's kind of a fiction, is that, that in reality, it's far more complicated how you get from there to here. And it's, and it's more about diversifying through niches. And so you have these niches that are, are that, that represent trade-offs that might be physical trade-offs. They might also be biological trade-offs. Like there, there are manufacturing challenges. In order to build something with two eyes, you need to build other things first. And so there's baggage that goes along with the, you know, the need to have two eyes is gonna have some of this baggage there. If you have one eye, that's a sort of a different thing. If you got you know, 30 you know, components of your eye that lead you down different paths. And so these, you know, the diversity at the kind of leaves of this tree leads to some other you know, side effect diversity. That sounds like what I'm trying to get to here is, for me as an engineer, what's beautiful about that is traditionally when we think of what an engineering challenge is, 
that you go into a problem and you look for what are the unique characteristics of this problem. So there are ways to solve every problem, or, or that we think there are ways to solve lots of problems. And our job as an engineer is to know when to use which solution. So if we go into it and we say, okay, so you can only use this many watts of power. Well, that limits me to the certain solutions. So if I'm only limited to this many watts of power, then I have to consider these solutions. If um, uh, maybe I'm not limited in power, but I'm limited in dollars I can spend. Well, that leads to a different set of solutions and so on and so forth. And there are really niches in the engineering space and some of those niches have been highly populated by really excellent solutions, but other niches are still pretty much, the solutions we have are band-aids that we kind of bring over from other niches. And so, you know, if you start considering things like, sometimes crazy ideas like, what if I go to Mars and, you know, there's no way to really communicate in real time with robots out there, and so the robots have to make their own decisions or whatever, that starts pushing us into this uncomfortable region where, we don't really have a lot of great examples of that that we've been doing here. And that's where we can say, okay, well, let's flip over and look at biology. And maybe um, biology will give us good starting points that, um, that, yeah, if we were designing something for here where we had all of the infrastructure that we do, then maybe going to biology would be taking a step back. But if we go to an area where we haven't really built the infrastructure, we don't have the knowledge base, then the biology gives us, again, it's a place to start. It's not a place to finish. So I don't ever, you know, I, I, just mimicking biology for mimicry's sake is almost never a good idea because there's optimizations you can make. There are going to be things that in the biology are going to be coupled to this legacy baggage that maybe you don't have in your engineered system. So if you just blindly do it the way biology does, you might lead yourself down a path that is going to be suboptimal or, or not even not even locally optimal, just kind of bad. But there's always lessons to learn. So biology is a model for where to start, I guess. And that's what I love about biobiology is that it, it has so many starting points. And so whether I'm, even outside ants, you know, there's, you know, on the order of 20,000 ants or something, different species of ants, you know, and, and you might have learned about trail following ants. Well, even among the trail following ants, not all the trail following ants do it the same way. There are ants that don't follow trails and they do it a very different way. And of all of those, they do it different, different ways. And some of those are similar to how honeybees do it, but some are not. That. So studying all these differences really inspires us to sort of say like, wow, you know, like if I was on Mars, if I was on Pluto, if I was on Earth, if I was under sea, you know, like you start seeing a diversity of challenges and they map to these diversity of solutions. And that's kind of what I try to pioneer in our lab. In summary, is that just the idea of convergent evolution, as in there's multiple different starting points, but they're all arriving at the same conclusion, which is the solution to the problem? Well, so we have to, so convergent, that's kind of a loaded term, the convergent evolution thing. So like a lot of times we talk about convergent evolution, we find that uh, multiple pathways lead to sort of the same solution. So if you look at a cephalopod eyeball, like uh, an octopus or something like that, you know, they, they have what's um, known as a simple eye, just like we have a simple eye. So um, on the outside of the eye, looking at them, it looks like, wow, like that's exactly the same eye. But it turns out that um, that the pattern, like that idea of, um, of most of how that eye is put together has converged upon that design. And there, there's no, they don't come from, it's not like there was an eye in the past that some ancestor of, um, of both 
vertebrates and cephalopods had, and then that's where the eye came from. In that case, there really was no common eye in the background, and they converged on a single eye. And, um, and there are interesting differences because of that that we can see. So, for example, we have a blind spot in our eye because all of the kind of neural hardware has, has inside our eye and has to get out of the eye, and that creates a spot um, where we can't access. Um, but in the cephalopod eye, it sort of, all of its hardware is on the outside of the eye, so it doesn't actually have to be poked through a hole to get all the wiring out, and so they don't have a blind spot. Um, so there are those kind of important differences, but in the end, a tiny little blind spot doesn't really affect the function. So that's why we, so we, we think of it as being it's converged on effectively the same design. And that's cool, because um, that really shows the strength of a design. If we found, like, across all biological taxa, um, they all had the same sort of skin, and we found that that skin wasn't just inherited from a common ancestor, then we'd say there's something special about this skin design. Maybe we should be designing missiles with this skin or whatever else. But um, what I'm talking about is even when things diverge. So when you actually sort of say like, wow, you know, this eye is very much different than this other eye. Um, you know, maybe the blind spot thing, like why are they different? Well, it turns out there's a manufacturing distance difference which explains the cephalopod versus the vertebrate differences. Or um, why do these ants follow this pheromone trail really tightly, but these other ants seem to take the pheromone trail as just kind of a mere suggestion, and they're kind of very fuzzy. They don't really pay much attention to the trails laid down by many of their peers, um, if you want to call them peers or sisters. Um, then we'd say, wow, why is there that difference? And if then we can then couple that difference to differences in the habitats in which they evolved, um, then we can say, wow, that, then that that's a functional difference. So that means that there's a reason for this, these design differences. And if I want to build something based on trail laying, I need to make sure that I'm in the right analog for the habitat that this model of trail laying was sort of evolved for. So, so it's not, so as I think convergent evolutions is cool, but I think the, the diversity, the divergence is almost even cooler because it gives us kind of more, uh, more places to start from. Okay. You mentioned previously the ideas of biomimicry and biologically inspired. What are the differences between the two? Right. So, so there are a lot of things. So bio, I, I would say bioinspiration is sort of a bigger tent. So biomimicry, um, sometimes it's easier to think about biomimicry when we think about uh, things that are these kind of more proximate mechanisms like, uh, like the material properties and things like that. So if we want to say like, we need to build a material that um, has a particular strength to weight ratio. And we can go out and see like, wow, there's this insect cuticle that is really lightweight, but is really strong. And what's going on there? And if we look at it under a, a scanning electron microscope or whatever, we see it's got a particular um, structure to it. And then we'd say, wow, you know, we can 3D print that structure. And if we 3D print that structure with a, a 3D printer with a tight enough resolution that we can get a similar strength to weight ratio with a material that we never thought we could get that strength to weight ratio. And then that, I think, would be biomimicry in that we found a design and we're mimicking it kind of one-to-one -one for roughly the exact same purpose. Um, a lot of people in biomimicry, um, there's sort of a slice of biomimicry that is very much related to sustainability. And so there's, there's, that adds, it adds actually sort of a why to the how. So, um, you know, a kind of the generic biomimicry is sort of how does this, um, 
how does this beetle have a particular rostrum that's really strong? And then you look at that and you build your own sort of version of that. And then the whys to it, you could say that, well, um, if you focus on a sustainability challenge, how does this particular animal evacuate waste in a way that doesn't uh, contaminate its burrow or something like that? And it, how does it sort of sustainably manage its waste? Then you might find certain chemical processes that, wow, you know, if we use those in our own solid waste management plants, that um, then that would actually maybe lead to a more sustainable way to manage our own own waste. And so some people who go down the biomimicry route are actually going to be, have sort of a, a teleology, sort of an indirectness there. They're not doing the biomimicry just because they're looking for a new design. They're actually hoping that the biological designs will not only be interesting, but will actually be more sustainable. Um, you have to be careful out there because don't, we don't know the why questions behind, like we, we have theories. So as an example, um, there was a, a, a beautiful example of these termite nests that, um, so in, in Africa, there are these, these chimneys that these termites build and nobody really understood where these, these above ground chimneys, like what was the purpose of these above ground chimneys? And so uh, in like 1980 or something like that, someone published a paper with a mathematical model that suggested how these chimneys might provide kind of a passive way to do heating and cooling of the, or just basically temperature regulation of the termite mounds. And so if you built this sort of thing up, it would be like a very cheap and energy efficient way to evacuate hot air and bring in cool air and those sorts of things. And people thought that was it for a long time. But then a guy um, from New York named Scott Turner, who's a physiologist who studied fluid flows through like lizard veins and things like that, decided to go and instrument these things. He said, you know, I know how to study thermoregulation inside the body of a lizard. Um, I'm just going to study it in these chimneys, too, to, to evaluate this thing. And what he found, basically, is that there was none of this cooling that people expected was going on inside these, um, these chimneys. And in reality, the chimneys were just basically pegged at exactly the same temperature as the ground. So really what was going on is that beneath these chimneys, there were effectively were giant basements that were you know, really using geothermal energy. They were just, they basically were, um, the, the, the ground was a buffer for the temperature and there wasn't any of these cool processes. Now there were some cool processes going on, but they were related to like getting rid of the CO2 and stuff like that and, and moisture and, and all that had nothing to do with temperature. Now, the reason I mention that is in between those two time points, some engineers and designers went out um, into Zimbabwe in the city of Harare, and they built a building based on this idea of passive cooling um, based on this termite chimney. And it was a sort of beautiful idea. Termites in Africa, uh, this building in Africa, the termites are energy efficient cooling, maybe this building is energy efficient cooling. But when they built the thing initially, it didn't cool. And they said, well, that's kind of weird. You know, we expected this to kind of work. So they had to add in some fans just to get the air flowing. Now, once they had fans to get the air flowing, it did cool. So that was an advantage. Like, it was a cool design because you didn't have to have compressors and all this other. It was a relatively low-energy way to cool this building. It wasn't totally passive. It still needed these active fans, but, um, it, was, but it was better than kind of the state-of-the-art used HVAC systems. And for a while, people uh, said, this is beautiful and it's biomimetic, so it must be better. Because if the termites are doing it this way, then we should be doing it the way the termites do. And by doing it the way the termites do, it's got to be superior. But then Scott comes around and, and instruments these things and finds out that's not at all what the termites are doing. So overnight, a building goes from being biomimetic to being maybe loosely bio-inspired. So if we only built it because it was biomimetic, I guess we got to tear it down. 
Um, but of course they didn't, you know, because it was a good design. So, so that's kind of you know an example I used to sort of demonstrate that um, that bioinspiration is kind of the big tent, and something that's biomimetic can become bioinspired. But bioinspired is just generally this idea that we're going to be thinking about problems through the lens of biology and ecology and see where it takes us. And it might take us to models of what we think is going on in biology that actually aren't going on. But we wouldn't have come to those models, those like say mathematical models or whatever, if we didn't, you know, think of, it's like we're reverse engineering the, um, if somebody hands you a really cool piece of technology and you want to figure out how it works and, you know, reverse engineer it, you might come up with, you know, weird idea of how it's working. And that might inspire you to build something that's a great competitor to that thing. But then later on, you talk to the real designers and the thing you're reverse engineering, you find out the design principles are totally different. But still, you came up with a great competitor to that. And, and that's okay. Um, you wouldn't have been able to come up with your design without that original design being there. So the fact that the termite chimneys existed and were regulating their temperature, or appeared to regulate their temperature, was enough for these architects to come up with a new design that they would have never come up with before. And I think that's great. So I don't really care if it's biomimetic or not. Other people really feel strongly that it has to be biomimetic. But then, the, you know, you lead down this path where, well, if a biologist does a little bit more work someday and finds out that the model that you based yourself on was wrong, then you put yourself in a, a really tricky situation. And, you know, I just, I just don't want to get myself into that sort of situation. So that's why I, I, I kind of more am in the bio-inspired camp. But, um, and occasionally things are more mimetic than others. But I don't think it really matters so long as we know what we're doing, I guess. Is there a division between biomimicry and biological inspired in the fields? I, I would say that now there, there is. There is tension between these groups. And a lot of it is because there are um, some individuals, some groups that, again, feel very passionately about the value in things being biomimetic because biomimetic seems like it must be sustainable. Now, there are bio, there are biological processes that we know that aren't sustainable. I mean, you could take Argentine ants, for example, that are now just, you know, taking over California. I mean, those are ants that were in Czech in Argentina that, you know, they, they sort of were, uh, but they, they moved into an area that, um, that didn't have the same checks on their growth and uh, same competitors and all those sorts of things, and now are a major ecological problem. And so that's an example where if you mimic some of the biological process, but not all of it, then maybe you actually run into a, a, a case where things will be, you know, th th things won't turn out the way you think they're going to turn out. And, you know, again, we don't always understand why's or whatever, but, uh, but anyway, there are still some people that feel very strongly that if things can be biomimetic, they should be. And those, that group of people um, is not maybe as inclusive because there are a bunch of people in bio-inspired design who really aren't focused on that. And because of that, it's become sort of a wedge where people doing bio-inspired design are hesitant to say they do biomimetic design because they either don't want to be criticized by that group or don't want to end up associating themselves with ideas that they never really meant to get along with. So it's just easier for them to say, uh, we do bio-inspired design and, um, and, and, and then say, we don't do biomimetic design because you know, that's a very loaded term. We just keep it easy and do a bio-inspired design. 
There are some others out there. There's also like a term, like there's a guy named Robert Fool, who's a very distinguished professor at, um, at Berkeley. And, and he's a very interesting guy because he's like an integrated biologist, like pure hardcore biology. But he churns out like a legacy of people that go into all sorts of other fields, like engineering and things like that. And they all came from like his integrated biology lab. And he um, uses the term biomutualism. And, um, and it's a little funny because mutualism ha already has like a meaning in biology that has to do with, you know, things related to symbiosis and parasitism and other things like that. But his term of biomutualism is this idea that there's a bi-directional flow from biology to engineering and engineering back to biology and it's always engaged. So like he does a lot of like empirical robotic stuff where like you might ask a question of, um, you know, well, how do I, um, what is the right stiffness for the legs of a walking robot? Well, the engineer might be say, well, I'm gonna model that. So they build a, like a mathematical model or simulation or whatever. And, um, and what Bob would say is you could do that, that's fine. But in the end, that model is a model It's just gonna lead to predictions you're gonna have to test anyway. So why don't you just build five different robots with five different leg stiffnesses and then just send them upstairs or ramps or all these things that'd be really difficult for you to model mathematically anyway. And let's just empirically see, you know, which one is best suited for which environment. So this is like, he's basically saying like, um, you know, if we find five different lizards that have very different leg structures, we're going to try to see what habitats seem to be selecting for these different lizard um, traits. And so, um, so he's kind of taken that and saying, well, let's just do the same thing with the robots. Like, we know how to build them. Let's just build them and cut the modeling out of it and do empirical robotics. And then we can say, and then that will end up generating ideas that maybe that'll help, like, you know, hone in or home in on a, a particular idea that then maybe you can model and say, well, why does this particular stiffness work so well? And then we can, you know, go down that route. Um, but we can start with kind of experimentation. So anyway, so that's his idea, sort of biomutualism, is where like you can never quite figure out if the arrow is going one direction or the other because they're kind of always complementing each other. So, um, but I don't know. I, I, for me, I don't, like at some point, I'm not sure that these terms are that helpful. Um, like in machine learning, we talk about things like exploration and exploitation and things like that. And those are terms that were, derived from this particular model problem called a multi-armed bandit problem. It had to do with like, if you've got slot machines, um, you know, how, how, how often do you switch between arms versus like, you know, settling on one arm? And it was very meaningful to say like, well, there's exploration when you're trying different arms and then you switch to another strategy where you then switch to just one arm. So there's discrete choices and things like that. The reason I'm going down this path is I'm, I'm trying to say that like, oftentimes the loaded words we use at one point were meaningful and useful, but then now, like, people use exploration and exploitation all the time. They, they use it for a bunch of continuous problems where I think there are other concepts that we could borrow from that actually are meaningful conceptual models and not just, I don't know, semantic sugar to make things sound sweeter. So, um, and I'm kind of starting to feel like bioinspiration is kind of going down that route where I'm not sure it's that useful um, because by itself, I just don't know what it means because it uh, because there's all these competing definitions and things. It's really interesting to see how with politics, for instance, you have the Democrats, you have the Republicans. They're very against each other. They hate each other. And then you take this into the academic fields and in artificial intelligence. You have the classical AI versus the deep learning AI. And then also now in biology, you have biomimicry and biologically inspired. 
it's really interesting to see how these divisions and these oppositions are prevalent in every facet of humanity and they undoubtedly get in the way of uh, evolution and advancement but it is always going to be there and we just have to find our way to evolve past this well i i, I do want to pick up on that I, I think that that that's one one take on it is exactly what you said there but i think what's also interesting though is these conflicts also create place where ideas can incubate. Sometimes they're good ideas, sometimes they're terrible ideas. Um, but it's kind of like, um, so sometimes I'm frustrated, as, as a kind of an interdisciplinary researcher, sometimes I get frustrated that I'll see a result that'll get published in one field. Um, let's say it's a marketing field or something like that, uh, or management science or something. And I'll be like, wow, this exact same result was published 20 years ago in collective behavior or something like that, but it was done with guppies or, or something. And, but it's exactly the same, same model or whatever. And it's just a mathematical modeling paper that I published in the management science or, or, or behavioral economics or whatever. So really, like, the, there's no, it's not like they did a special experiment with humans. It's like, it's exactly the same model. But the management science people aren't gonna be reading about guppies and the guppy people aren't gonna be reading about management science necessarily. And so they're, they're always end up just kind of like sometimes you get that convergent evolution, um, but then there's there's it, there could be a lot of opportunities for these groups to get together, and it seems like it would take a lot of shortcuts and whatever. But the thing is, um, although that's a cost, um, there are a bunch of people in that management science community who, um, if we just had one kind of you know discipline or something like that then they may not have a place to go because there may not be jobs or whatever. So it's kind of funny that, like, I think a big function of academia and the disciplines of academia are actually to create jobs for future academics. And, and in some cases, it just seems wasteful because you create these fields that are so similar, but they don't talk to each other. Um, but you realize if they did talk to each other, you'd actually have fewer people employed thinking about these ideas. And... I'm not saying that's the right way to go, but to me, that's the glass half full for when we think about all of these divisions, the Democrats or the Republicans or whatever. Because almost anybody through their trajectory through life, I don't know anybody who was, who their political identity didn't change. But it had to start somewhere and it had to have somewhere to go. And, and those terrible ideas on the other side, whatever they are, um, they may not be that attractive, but occasionally they'll come up with an interesting argument that causes you to kind of say, huh. And, and it, it might cause you to alter your ideas a little bit, or it might cause you to totally switch. And there might be some value in that, just, again, in diversity. And so the downside of not having these factions is I'm not convinced we'd actually have the diversity that we do have. I guess the downside of diversity is that we've got a lot of people who you know, are going to get into conflicts. So I definitely can see your biology background mentioning diversity, obviously. It's a very, very large idea in biology. But to continue with the idea of biologically inspired, within the field of artificial intelligence, the approach is heavily with neural networks and deep learning and all that. Do you see that this has a possible path towards the goal of artificial general intelligence? Or do you think that based on the ties between the biological approaches, such as 
what was happening when the Wright brothers tried creating the first plane. They, they based it off the birds, and over time they realized that wasn't the correct way. Do you think something like that will happen within artificial intelligence, or do you see it more so the idea of biology and it evolving intelligence? Do you think that is the only way it can be done? Well, I mean, I, I never want to say something is the only way that it can be done. I certainly think that if we're talking about artificial intelligence, they're built on very different machinery. The proximate mechanisms are different. You're not, um, and it's like the, the way you manufacture a computer is very different than the way you manufacture a brain. Um, the, the way you operate a computer is very different than the way you operate a brain. Uh, and so there are always going to be fundamental differences, and, um, and there are certainly going to be solutions in biology that aren't going to make sense. But again, going along with the diversity side of things, now you know all. You, maybe the the right flyer didn't look like a flapping wing bird, but it glides in ways which are analogous, which the way some birds glide, and um, and there are certainly things that. Um, so John Maynard Smith was this kind of uh, engineer biologist. So he was a, uh, I think he was a, a, a aeronautical engineer uh, going into World War II kind of disgusted with engineering coming out of the war, decided he was going to study evolutionary biology, became an extremely influential evolutionary biologist. And he uh, wrote a paper um, the talking about flight and the brain. And, um, and so, like, you know, bats fly a particular way that's very different than the way birds fly. And the way birds fly compared to bats is a little bit more like kind of a... a consumer commercial jetliner versus like the way bats fly is a little bit more like, you know, like a military vehicle, like an F-15 or something like that, you know. So the, the maneuverability is much higher on a bat than it is with the bird, which does mainly a lot of gliding and not a whole lot of turning on a dime and things like that. And he argued that the only way you got to a bat was by having the brain of a mammal. And mammal brains are much bigger, and they can deal with the extra computation needed to do to deal with the lack of intrinsic stability that a bat has that birds get for free. Birds just stick their wings out, and they can do things, and they got those tail feathers. Bats don't have the tail feathers, and so bats just don't naturally glide the same way that birds do. And but they get a whole lot of maneuverability out of it, but they need a kind of that big brain or whatever. And so. The reason I bring this example up is it's like, I think there are principles that are, that transcend the biology and the technology and that we need to really use them to take lessons from them. But I think when people get down into the like, the really esoteric, you know, the, the stuff that really has the risk of being coupled to the particular wetware that things are built out of, then I stop being as convinced that there's general principles there that, you know, that will be able to transcend. So, you know, and, and we don't know exactly where that dividing line is, like in the brain. Like, you know, there are just some parts of the brain that are probably only need to be that way because the brain is this, you know, wet thing that needs to have oxygen and whatever and all of that. Whereas, <clears throat> you know, neurons in an artificial neural network, they're not going to need that. But I, I don't know. So I don't know how we get to artificial general intelligence. I don't know if biology is the way, but I know that right now, artificial intelligence isn't very exciting. Even the idea of artificial general intelligence to me isn't very exciting, 
because it hasn't really been well specified as to, you know, like, what does it really mean to be, I mean, it's just sort of this aspirational goal that I don't think has really been hashed out that we even know, like, what we are, when we, you know, when we get there. Um, I also think that the things that humans do day to day that, uh, you know, that aren't very, that like, th there's this sort of paradox that most of the things we do that we think of as being cognitive aren't actually that difficult to do. I mean, the hard things that we know are hard because we've tried to do them with computers and things are like sensory processing and stuff like that, like just making sense. But once you, once you have kind of an idea that, you know, this thing's yellow and that's red and this is round and whatever, like the higher order processing, you know, you could write out those algorithms in a couple of lines of math that doesn't require a huge amount of code or something like that. So I don't know. I'm optimistic that we'll get somewhere. Um, I don't know the path will go there, but I don't want to say it's definitely this or it's definitely not that because, like I said, it's it's all about releasing our idea generation and finding new ways to generate I generate these transitional objects. That's really what we need. Is it? And maybe a, a maybe a biological organism is a transitional object that helps us transition our mental states from one to another. Maybe just building something that we thought might work and trying it out as a transitional object and then seeing that it doesn't work, you know, maybe that's it. But we need as many of these external transitional objects as possible because our brains by themselves, even though they're, you know, generally intelligent, aren't apparently that intelligent because the brains we're trying to mimic can't seem to come up with a lot of great ideas to, to be the brains that they are, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. To change gears here a little bit now, I'm curious as to your philosophy on life and your views on life. What do you think is, first off, actually, let me take a step back. What would you, what would you say your top five books are and ones that have made the most impact on you? Oh, I, I mean, I stopped reading books a long time ago. Um, I mean, I, I, when I was, you know, when I was in high school, going into, uh, into, into my bachelor's, um, I was motivated by the, there like, um, there or were, you know, there were books, again, on physics and cosmology, some by Brian Greene, for example, again, there's a, a book by uh, Nick Herbert um, that was really good on quantum physics. Um, I read a lot of kind of like nonfiction. Um, and, um, and then for a while, I was kind of in the kind of the group of people that was motivated by so there was kind of, there's a, a group of sort of like um, more educated people that were into like Jared Diamond and guns, germs and steel and whatever. And then there was like the, the kind of the, the plebeians that I was in that um, there was this guy named Daniel Quinn who kind of had this like cottage industry of books, uh, this book called Ishmael or whatever, which is basically the exact same story that, that Jared Diamond was saying, but kind of in a fictional frame instead of a non-fictional frame. And all that was fine and I thought it was kind of like mind bending and opening at that time in my life but then I got you know once I started getting to grad school like it's just exhausting the amount of reading and writing and and I, I it, it's kind of like I got into I got into double E um, because I was so excited about the magic of electromagnetics and then I learned about electromagnetics all the magic just went poof into the air and 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 you know at one time in my life you know uh, you know audiobooks and paper books and all that had a similar sort of magic but now it's like just get to the point man like uh you know most of the things people write are exactly the same as things that other people have written you know a year before 10 years before 100 years before with just a minor idea you know people make fortunes off of just getting a book into the new york times bestseller list 
um, just because the book that they're mimicking has been forgotten. And, you know, so they write the same book all over again. And, and that's just not, again, for me, I have to do so much reading for my job. It just is a waste of time to read those things. And um, so do a lot of reading at work and figured out, you know, how to read things quickly. Um, you know, do a lot of writing at work and, you know, a lot of editing at work. Um, but then after that, like I go home and, um, and, and there, you know, and I, and at that point, like, I just, like, I just need something that like, you know, I watch a lot of TV, for example. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of hiking, I go out into nature. Um, and you know, that's the type of stimulus that, um, if I'm reading, if I'm not reading for work, my anxiety just goes way up because it feels like I'm, I'm wasting time because, you know, I've just been trained that when you read, you're extracting certain things that you need to make use of in a future paper that you're going to write later. And so, and so I just, you know, I just can't get myself to enjoy reading anymore. So I, you know, so I don't really have like the top five books I could give you would be the top five books that I could manage to remember from back when I was, you know, a teenager. Um, cause like now, um, you know, people give me their books, or whatever, and I'll accept them. I'll put them on the bookshelf, but probably not going to read them because you know like usually the back cover tells you everything that's in the book and at least if you've if you've read enough of the other things you know all the things that they're citing from like if you know all the primary sources you know even that like I, I get really frustrated um, by people in SciComm and science communication because a lot of the stuff you know like if I see an interesting headline um, usually the headline is not as interesting as it it it's usually the content is not actually like the headlines usually a little bit over over hyped but then also they usually just don't quite get it right and they have too much like introduction or whatever so almost always when i hit anybody's like secondary source or tertiary source i just look for the references and go to the primary source and read an abstract and um and that abstract is usually much more illustrative than the five pages that people have written that maybe totally missed the point and um, so, yeah, I don't know. Reading frustrates me. Um, and I just, if I'm not, it's not a primary source, I'm probably not reading it. It's funny. You mentioned very briefly the magic of EE or of electrical engineering and how once you read up more on it, the magic dissolves. That kind of thing happened to me as well with artificial intelligence. Mm. I watched, or two years ago, I watched the documentary on AlphaGo, uh-huh. if you're familiar with that. I was fascinated by this. I thought this was a godly thing. Like, oh my God, how is this possible? And then once I looked into like the math and how it all worked, the magic essentially dissolved. Like it's still very fascinating to me. But as I as it stands, when I was a, a somebody that wasn't knowledgeable on how it worked and the technicalities of it all, it was much more mind blowing than it is for me now. Right. To so moving on, what is a what is something you would tell yourself if you were in my position? as a 21 year old just graduating college or undergraduate um i would say um you know just keep pushing forward and following your interests you're going to find there's going to be a lot of worries about you know um pigeonholing yourself for example like oh if let's say if i get too much education that i'll um you know if i get my master's or i get my phd um that um, I'll end up being too specialized, and if I make the wrong choices about which things to go into, then it's I'm really it's really going to upset things later because then I'm going to be hyper specialized for one thing that I won't be able to use. And and at some that advice maybe makes sense 
going into maybe undergrad. So at that point, you're choosing a you're choosing a giant kind of um, coarse grained representation of the sort of the, the of the the tools that you're about to learn. Um, but and so you kind of want to get it right. Like, like if if you really are are, are best suited to be a, a lawyer in the end then you know there are, are certain things that you could do like as a freshman that maybe aren't going to line up perfectly with that or are going to be like kind of a waste of time or whatever but but there's but in the but as you get further along i would say that the choices you make matter less and because as you get further along you learn how to learn much faster and you ne- you don't realize like the things that you're learning actually have portability and applicability to other things I mean, I know people in animal behavior who end up getting hired by the Amazons and Googles of the world because they've got a great statistical background and, um, and maybe they have sort of just a novel way to think about autonomous systems or something like that. And so that was a career path that they never really expected, but that jump into becoming very natural. So I guess that would be the thing is that don't worry so much about your choices. Focus on lifelong learning, you know, continual learning. Um, apply for everything, even if it seems like you're not quite as qualified. Because usually when people write statements like, like you know, like job postings and things like that, a lot of times a job posting is actually, the, that language is written for the middle management to convince the upper management to approve it. But when the middle management ends up making the decisions on who gets hired, they actually have a much broader idea in mind. And a lot of people don't realize that. They're like, oh, I don't tell I have the qualifications. You might have something that they never, didn't really even think about, but then once they see you, they're like, wow, this person would fit in really well here. And I've seen that happen time and time again. So don't worry so much. And don't ever expect you ever to feel like things are all figured out. Because um, uh, there's always these, these like new challenges, you know, and, you know, whether... They can be new challenges in your professional life, and then they can be new challenges in your personal life. Like you become a homeowner, and then you learn like all of these things that you didn't realize were like that you now have to take care of. You know, in, in um, you know, in, in building a home or in maintaining a home or in, in renovating or in dealing with these maintenance problems or whatever or in selling all that. Like there's all these like there's just always new problems, and you're a little bit of it's kind of like a red queen thing. You're running to stay in in, in the same place. But you're growing as you're running, and um, and so yeah. At no point are you going to feel settled, you know, and safe or whatever. But if you think back on your life, you're going to realize how much you've grown, and you'll have a lot to be proud of. And you'll realize that if things do kind of like not fit in well here, the longer you you stay in the game, the more skills you'll have that'll make you attractive to make a change. So. So I guess that's that's kind of the thing is just be optimistic and just keep pushing forward and keep learning how to learn and um, I don't know the only other like practical thing is because uh, I know like at your stage and you're starting to think about like grad school and things like that um, you know there are opportunity cost calculations that we don't talk about um, when but are really important practically and so what I mean by that is like you know there's there's, you know, an engineer coming out of their bachelor's is going to make a certain amount of money. Coming out of their master's will make a certain increment more than that. And then coming out of their PhD, they might make more than that. But the, but the amount of time you put into your education is, um, you know, during the actual education, you're not going to be making much at all. And so there are a lot of people that, you know, like, even if you feel 
like a lot of people go into their PhD thinking they're going to get a lot of like freedom, and then maybe they do end up getting freedom um, in their careers to do kind of the things that they want, and maybe not have a boss ahead of them, you know, setting intellectual directions, and that might be really important to them. But the extra time it took to do that, like they could have been in a pretty nice job with a master's making a decent chunk of change that they weren't making while they're in their PhD and they might actually leave home or leave work at 5 p.m. and be able to have a wonderful life at home where they don't have to think about work whereas maybe in a PhD job there's going to be this kind of neurofacturing where you're just sort of expected that you're always like supposed to be churning out ideas at all hours of the night and maybe that quality of life is not going to be so great so yeah, no. So intellectual freedom is not all that, that people say it is. Um, it has a lot of costs that come with it, and there's a lot of opportunity costs to seek it out. So that's kind of the practical thing. So I don't know if that's necessarily what you're looking for, but I guess that's the advice I'd give. That was a very in-depth answer. Thank you. For the last and final question, what is your meaning of life? Uh, what is my, my meaning of, of life? Um, Let me rephrase this. What... What, what is something that you wake up every day and you get excited to do? Yeah, I think, I think questions. I think I just like questions. Um, I think that if there's a point in, if there's a day in my life where I wake up and there's not a curiosity or a question, uh, you know, a how does that work or, or, or the thing, the way I used to think things work seemed to contradict another way that, you know, seems to, you know, that, that idea, the tension and questions, um, if, if I ever wake up and that is not there, um, I think I will feel like there's nothing left to live for. So I guess to me, um, you know, the, I would say um, on, the, on the kind of mental side of things, that's the thing. It's just like, and that's in fact why I went into engineering and things like that. You know, I, I was like, you know, I, not only was I interested in like how do you transmit things across, um, you know, airwaves, but little things like when I looked at a table and I saw a reflection off a table or a reflection off a mirror, then, you know, I'd be like, you know, what's going on inside that material that's generating those reflections? You know, that was a, an interesting question. And even though those questions got answered for me, that just raised other questions, you know, about stability and whatever, which lead me to control and whatever. And so, Chasing questions, I think, is is a great way to to stay stimulated in life. And then otherwise, I guess, um, I mean, the other thing that I realize and I'm realizing more is um, is that having um, having a a so that, that that kind of questions answer is sort of it's almost kind of worky. It's more on the kind of intellectual side of things, and I guess. For me, that's where I thought my legacy was going to be. It's like, you know, like I would have a personal life or whatever, I'd have a family, or maybe I wouldn't, or whatever, but but the thing that would live on after I was gone would be my kind of intellectual legacy, like the papers I would write and all that sort of stuff. And and that's that's what I thought was, you know, chasing legacy. And as I'm getting kind of further on, you know, I see like, you know, how rarely certain papers are cited and all those sorts of things and how much work goes into some things that that, um, that seem to kind of like, they don't kind of have the heavy tail that I was sort of expecting, they kind of like fall off really quickly. And, um, and I realized that like, you know, legacy is something that you can achieve in all sorts of ways. And that legacy, you know, could just be the way you make your partner feel or um, the, you know, the way you're, you know, taking your dog to the dog park makes your dog feel or whatever. And you think that that doesn't, that doesn't seem like legacy, but 
you know, you, you realize the stuff kind of accumulates over time. And it's stuff that when you look back on, that's stuff you really are proud of. When I look back on like the stuff I published or whatever, I think about eh, the things I missed in that paper or the things I you know got, got shelved because they didn't quite get published or whatever. And in the end, like you know, maybe people cited them and maybe they didn't and maybe they got used. But it just it just is a very temporally discounted value. It just falls off really quickly. Whereas when I look back on the parts of my life which I think when I was coming up. I didn't value at all, you know, the, the kind of the family parts of my life. Um, those are the things that are becoming more and more lasting to me. And, uh, and that's something that, um, you know, whereas now I say, you know, what gets me up in the morning are the questions. Uh, if you ask me five years from now, you know, what gets me up in the morning and, you know, the curiosities and the questions may not even enter into it. You know, what gets me up in the morning is, the idea that I get to spend, you know, 7 p.m. that night, you know, with uh, fighting off my uh, dog from the tennis ball or something like that. And it sounds trivial, but in the end, it's really the only sustainable thing that I can see for the long term. That was beautiful. I definitely hear that from many different professors in your position. They always tell me, do not worry about like the intellectual achievements that you have because as you get older, these things will mean less and less to you and it's more so the things you never really considered, like spending time with your family. And that very that resonates with me very heavily because in my position, I am of the former. I am really interested in leaving a, an intellectual legacy behind. But yeah, I would definitely need to start taking that advice of caring more about the non-intellectual aspects of my life. But that was a great way to end it. Thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciated this conversation. I really Thanks enjoyed for inviting it. Me. Yes, of course. Before we go our separate ways, I want to share a quote by Guyan Nagpal. Breakthrough innovation occurs when we bring down boundaries and encourage disciplines to learn from each other. If you like this podcast, then please give my channel five stars on your preferred podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time.